Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, 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 EJ, how the turntables. The AFC is once again a complete shit show. Nobody knows who's the best team anymore. Uh, All due to the Tennessee Titans upsetting the Buffalo Bills. Just when we thought everything was kind of shaking out and we had some idea what the NFL was looking like. uh, it, It throws another curveball at us. Hell of a week of football. They had upsets. We had surprising blowouts we had a couple games that not just lived up to expectations but probably far exceeded them uh just uh just a hell of a week before we dive into everything though uh how are you and what are you drinking i'm all right it was definitely a topsy-turvy week uh feels like the first different week in this nfl season but we'll talk about that as we get going um i've got a beer from fort george brewing uh, their City of Dreams Pale Ale. Now, I've had things from Fort George before, but I have not had their pale, so I'm excited. It's got some great can art. I'm always I'm a sucker for good can art. It's got this pencil drawing of a, of a little town. Oh, yeah. Spe- um, speaking of can art, look at that. Ooh, oh, I I think I know that beer. I think I, we bought that when I was down there, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I got another sixer of it because it's so damn good. <laughs> uh, so, all right, what are you drinking? Well, as you know, this is Einstock, the Icelandic Wee Heavy. Let's see if I can get the camera to focus on it. Uh, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like whiskey today. I felt like beer. Seems like it's the perfect beer for when the weather starts to turn. You know, it's malty. It's heavy. It's a very fall-type beer, but uh, very, very well done from Einstock. I didn't have it until you showed it to me, and I was like, ooh, this is actually pretty damn good. Um, but as I mentioned at the top of the show, fantastic week of football. Um, we're going to talk about... All of the games and the blowouts and the battles, you know, New England and Dallas, obviously the uh, Arizona and Cleveland game that I was at in person last week, the Chargers getting blown out. Um, Before we get into the first game we're going to talk about, or rather the first teams we're going to talk about, I do want to announce that we're going to have our first Ring of Honor Q&A for all patrons, the top two level of patrons. That's going to be this Saturday, October 23rd at 9 a.m. Pacific time. So if you're a member of one of the top two tiers on Patreon. We're going to have a Q&A uh, stream just for you guys. So if you already are signed up for that, or rather already are a patron, uh, come on by to that this Saturday. If you're not, you can sign up anytime between now and then, and uh, and you'll get it. You'll get the invite. And uh, yeah, come hang out with us, talk football for a little while. And we made it at 9 a.m. Pacific because we know that we have a lot of Europeans that follow us, and we felt like that was the, that was the best way to fit it into your schedule. So with that being said... 
Uh, let's get to three up here. Number one, which is the elite teams, I guess we could say, well, quote unquote, elite, uh, emerging elite in both now. conferences. <laughs> elite for now until they get upset by Derrick Henry again. Arizona in the NFC, Baltimore in the AFC. You could also argue Dallas in the NFC too, but there's really not more than two or three teams per conference right now than that I feel have legitimate Super Bowl aspirations. Again, Arizona, Dallas, throw Tampa in there because it's Tom Brady, and they're also playing really well. Um, Buffalo in the AFC, even though they just lost, they're going to be there. It kind of seems like the cream is rising to the top now, you know, six weeks into the season, and we're starting to see the elite teams separate from the mid-tier teams and the bottom-tier teams obviously separating from everybody. Detroit's kind of in its own tier entirely. So I wanted to talk a little bit specifically about Arizona, which is the only undefeated team remaining, and Baltimore, which after their early loss to the Raiders has just been on a tear and has slowly gotten better and better each week to the point where now they're blowing out other really good teams like the Chargers. It kind of seems like these two teams, in my opinion, are possibly on a collision course in February because I don't think anybody in the AFC can beat Baltimore right now. And I'm not sure anybody in the NFC can beat Arizona right now, other than maybe Dallas. That's the only one I think I could argue right now is Dallas. But they're, they're both just playing phenomenal football. They're both dominating in some wins and then scrapping out some wins as well. Like we we saw uh, the Cardinals be down to Jacksonville of all teams and then realize in the second half, like, oh, wait, we're a really good team. Let's rip off 20 unanswered and blow them out in the fourth quarter alone. Uh, we saw the Ravens, you know, losing to the Colts and then coming back furiously in the second half and scrapping out that win and then blowing out the Chargers. It kind of seems like you name the kind of win and they're getting them and and they're just they're both so so hot that uh, I man I don't think anybody else can touch them right now. Right now is the key phrase, and I would thoroughly agree with you for right now. Like again, you named you know Dallas in the NFC and Tampa. I don't think you can discount Tampa just because it's Tampa. They're the reigning champs. They've got Tom. And in the AFC, it's really Buffalo. Like, they stumbled to Tennessee, but I think Ravens-Bills would be the game going right now in the AFC. And it's not only that they're winning lots of ways. That's really important for any team that people call it learning how to win. Well, both these teams already know how to win. It's that they do win. They win the games they're supposed to. And then in the games where it's more of a toss-up, they find a way to win. And... It's not only the winning, it's the fact that they've overcome obstacles, both of them. I mean, throw as many obstacles as you'd like at the Ravens. They have how many running backs on IR at this <laughs> point? Like an, an entire room full and then some. They're on, you know, retreads from other teams who are available on street free agency. And, you know, the Cardinals played without their coach this week, right? Their coach Didn't and play caller. But it doesn't matter. The Cardinals have beat everybody in their path, and they've done it on the road, at home, with their coach, without their coach. It doesn't really matter what you're saying about the Cardinals right now. They are rolling off wins. And the Ravens the same way. They had all these injuries early. We saw them lose a barn burner in week one when we were at the Raiders. 
we thought, well, the Raiders played a really good game and they knew how to win that game. But since then, you know, the Raiders barely lost that game again on the road, hostile environment, week one, still working things out. And since then, they've just ripped it off. They amassed injuries over the first three weeks and everybody kind of went, ah, uh, you know, would have been a good year for them. (laughs) And they just didn't stop. And now they go up against the Chargers. It was one of our games to watch. Chargers also a hot team on a roll. And Baltimore flat out embarrassed them. So that's really where we're sort of getting this. It's not really a take. The observation that these are the two teams at the top of the conference right now, conferences, that are the hottest and playing the best football. And, you know, I mentioned a couple teams in there that are also 5-1 and one and have a have a good shot at beating Arizona. Um, the Packers are five and one. Dallas is five and one. They play both of those teams. Packers games in two weeks on a Thursday night. And the Cowboys game is January 2nd. So there, there's still opportunities for the, for them to be unseated, but they've also blown out the Titans, which are a good team. They've blown out the Rams, which are a great team. Um, you know, they beat the shit out of the Browns, which very, very talented. I know the, I know they're hurt, but they're also a very talented team. You know, they survived the Vikings. They they beat the Niners. Like, they've been through tough games and come out relatively unscathed, at least as far as records go. So if anybody has a shot at, at you know, seizing this top dog status early, and then maintaining it through this gauntlet of a schedule. I do think it's Arizona because they have an MVP caliber quarterback. They have an offensive line that's playing extremely well. They have weapons on weapons on weapons on weapons. I mean, Hopkins, Rondale, A.J. Green is your wide receiver four, which is absurd because A.J. Green's playing a lot better than he has in a few years now. Uh, you know, you got the the Edmonds and Connor duo running back, the defense Chandler Jones like didn't even play this week, and they were still getting tons of pressure uh, against Baker Mayfield. Not to mention they have probably the most athletic linebacking core in the league. Like it's and Kime went out and got Ertz, right? You can tell that. Yeah, you know Steve yeah. Kime was like five and zero. Oh, that's it. We're pedal down. Like forget forget whatever plans we had. This is it. Each team is its own sort of microcosm within a year and you get five games through 17 and you're five and oh pull the trigger do we need to do we don't have a tight end threat right now Zach Ertz is available we're going to get him he can play this week because he's already played on Thursday he comes in next week it'll be interesting to see how he gets a worked into the offense and starts to connect with Kyler but when you talk about weapons on weapons on weapons you got at least four wide receivers if not five Chase Edmonds is playing extremely well every week, which is no surprise to Cardinal fans. He's been doing that for a couple of years now. And then you add Zach Ertz into what was mm, not an empty space. They had Max Williams there. He played pretty well, got hurt, unfortunately, and they didn't hesitate. They went out and got arguably the top tight end available uh, before the trade deadline and said, that's it. Hammer down. We're going for it. And uh, I just I can't wait to see, you know, we're only six weeks in, but I can't wait to see the rest of of this Cardinal season because it's a special team. I really do think it's a special team. We talked about it even before last season. Their top-tier talent could play with anybody. They started 6-2 and two last year, but we said they were also very thin. Kyler got hurt. Chandler Jones got hurt. They didn't have the depth to survive that. And now, not only are they staying relatively healthier, 
but they have depth. The entire team is playing out of their minds, and it's uh, it's it's really a sight to see. And the Ravens, as you mentioned, are kind of the exact opposite. They they have sustained a lot of injuries, but their quarterback is just so utterly ridiculous. And I think their coaching staff has also adjusted really well that they're still dominating teams too. And like once they get uh, you know their first round picket receiver fully healthy who he was active I think he was active last week but again Rashad Bateman still coming off that injury like Rashad Bateman is a ready to go rookie receiver great route runner great hands super elusive in the open field like he's one of these guys who can come off the bench when he's healthy and make a a huge impact in these last like nine games of the year like the Ravens could only get better which considering they're five and one through all these injuries should terrify the rest of the conference because they were supposed to start slow. As you mentioned, all of their running backs were hurt. Their best offensive lineman was hurt. Their supposedly superstar rookie X receiver was hurt. Lamar was also hurt. They shouldn't be 5-1. and one, But they're just that damn good. So I, I really do think that these teams, unless something catastrophic happens, knock on wood, I do think these, these two teams are... are on a collision course to, to meet in LA in February. It's, it's been that kind of year for them. Now, three up number two here, we're making this one on a specific game that I think you and I both loved watching. It kind of got progressively crazier and crazier as the night went on, involving one of those other NFC contenders that could very well dethrone Arizona. We'll see. And that was uh, the Cowboys going up to New England and putting on a historically good performance of sorts uh Cowboys total offense believe it or not 567 yards on Sunday the most a Bill Belichick defense has ever allowed in Bill's entire career which goes back to what the 80s with the Giants like ever ever that was the most his defense has ever given up in 619 games as a head coach or coordinator just an incredible performance by Dak Prescott, who, just like Kyler and just like Lamar, is having an MVP caliber season, which, I mean, he was playing phenomenally well last year and then obviously got hurt, and he was dragging that team through every single game because their defense was so bad. But this year, like coming into the year, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to see this this early because he's coming off the ankle. He had the really obscure shoulder injury where he didn't even practice or play for like six straight weeks. You know, going into the Tampa game, I was like, oh, I don't I don't know. It might take a little while for the Cowboys to get going. But nope, they they hung there with Tampa till the very end and then just started crushing everybody. It, it's it's been a sight to behold everything that Dak does on the field is at an elite level in terms of accuracy, pocket movement, decision-making, um, you know, pre-snap recognition and just getting them into good plays at the line of scrimmage. He is, I don't even know if I could say arguably, he is the best quarterback in the NFL right now. Maybe not the most dangerous with the ball in his hands. I would say that's Lamar or Kyler, but in terms of the entire package of quarterbacking, what it means to be a quarterback. There's nobody playing like Dak right now. He is a he is on a tier of his own, and I think the Cowboys' dominance in some of these games really reflects that. And like they they do not win in New England without Dak Prescott. 
there's zero chance because everything that went wrong or that could have gone wrong, I should say, went wrong for them. They had the fumble on the goal line. Um, they had some coaching decisions that made no sense, like trying to go for it on fourth and one from your own 34 to start the game. I was like, okay, there's being aggressive and then there's being stupid. I felt like that was stupid. Of course, they didn't get it. And then New England scores three plays later. You know, M- Mike McCarthy's clock management was terrible. Um, clock de- management. <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> clock management. The defense was giving up some some big runs. Like New England got him with trap a couple times. Uh, Ramondre Stevenson had a big play up the seam when they ran four verts and, and hit him on halfback seam. Uh, DeMonte Casey gave up two touchdowns by taking terrible angles as the post safety. Like the defense played probably their worst game of the entire season, including the Tampa game. But it didn't matter because Dak is just that good. They do not win that game without him. So I, I think he's kind of ascended to a level that even the people who loved Dak the last four years or whatever, even maybe they didn't think that he would ever get here because he is literally the best one in the league. He's the thing that impressed me about watching that game when I rewatched it was you talked about in terms of the full range of quarterbacking. And I'm I'm gonna talk about from the snap forward in a play. And Dak Prescott right now is the best at doing everything from the snap forward. He's also very good, I would say excellent at, like you said, getting them into the right play, pre-snap alignments, recognizing what's coming. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about once the ball is snapped, there is quick game, there is in the pocket, there is planned movement outside the pocket, bootlegs and rollouts. There are plenty of those in Kellen Moore's offense. And then there's flat out schoolyard. Busted play. I got to the edge. Nobody's there. I'm looking at that guy and going like this. All four of those phases, if you want to call those four phases from the snap on, nobody's doing all four of those phases better than Dak right now. He The quick game is probably the weakest part, but he is excellent at it. The in-the-pocket <laughs> stuff... He looks as calm and composed and is hitting the most dangerous option on the offense. Not the safest. He is hitting the most dangerous. He is pressing the button that hurts the most to the opposing defense. When he gets out on the edge, we all know he's very good there. He has continued to be very good there and continued to be very dangerous. He is going down the field when he gets outside the pocket on a bootleg. And then the flat-out busted play stuff look out. He's he's throwing darts 16, 18, 20 yards down the field, off platform, near the sidelines, going out last second. So the full gamut of what you need to do as a quarterback from snap to whatever happens, Dak is playing better than anybody in that entire package. Now you could take each piece of that package and say maybe there's one or two other guys in the league that are at or above his level at the scramble drill, at quick game at whatever. But when you look at it start to finish, nobody's playing better than Dak in combination. And um, speaking of quick game, the quarterback on the other side of things, Mac Jones, I think has really acquitted himself well um, to start his career. Like the supporting cast in New England, it's not like as terrible as people make it out to be, but it's not great. And they're still hanging in these games. Like, he's still delivering the ball on time with touch and timing and anticipation. Um, I think the pocket movement's been really good. Again, he's not like a, a, a 
terrific athlete, but I think, you know, kind of in that, that little seven by seven box, uh, in between the tackles, he's shown some really good footwork. I think he's shown some really good, um, awareness of pressure and just kind of navigating a messy pocket. Obviously his time to throw, like he gets the ball out super quickly, which for a young guy is great. Cause that means that he's IDing things pre-snap and then putting his eyes in the right spot post-snap so he can make a good decision. Um, there were some balls that he delivered in that game against a, a much tougher Dallas defense than we saw last year. Like that seam ball to Ramondre Stevenson, I thought was really good. Uh, the, the touchdown uh, to the tight end, 85, whose name is escaping me right now. That was a great ball inside leverage on Hunter the seam Henry. route. Yeah, Hunter Henry. That's that's who it was. Um, but yeah, he. It, you could argue that the the last touchdown to Kendrick Bourne was a hospital ball that ended up not being a hospital ball. Uh, but other than that, like I, I thought he played really, really well. And again, to even have that Patriots roster in position to potentially upset one of the five or six best teams in the league overall in Dallas, uh, that's a, a very commendable achievement. And if I was a Patriots fan, again, going into this year, expecting this to be a, a, ver- a down year by their standards and a rebuilding year, seeing Mac come in and start as a rookie and play like this I'd be all in like I would be happy that we spent a first round pick on this guy again do I ever expect him to be Josh Allen Mahomes Kyler any of those guys no the physical talent's not the same but he's a good quarterback and I think you can build around him I wouldn't disagree you know I said my impression of Dak when I rewatched the game my impression of Mac is that if we're talking about one of those four segments the quick game segment in particular he might be one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL in that segment let me say that really clearly before everybody jumps (laughs) in the mentions and says Mac Jones is not a top five quarterback you're right he is not a top five quarterback overall like I said about Dak but in that first segment in the quick game segment in terms of pre-snap identification getting the ball up snapping his mechanics around and getting it to the read if he knows where it's going that sort of zero to two seconds period mac jones is playing easily top 10 football as a quick game quarterback right now he he might be playing top five football and for a rookie that's amazing in that segment of the game there were some balls he got out in that game there was a wide receiver screen that look we talked about it before the show looked like a second baseman shortstop scoop and throw on a double play came up from the center squared and fired ball came out in like 1.8 seconds didn't turn out to be a big play i mean completed it It was a maybe two yard gain to the wide receiver not a great play but the motion the mechanics, the knowledge of, I got it, I'm getting it there, ball was on a line. That part of his game is really good. He's taking some measured deep shots. I'm with you that the long touchdown probably shouldn't have been if the safety took the right angle. Uh, that would have been a nasty collision. It worked out for him. The seam ball to Ramondre was nice. The ball to Hunter Henry was in the right place. And it's funny because everybody credited Mac's predecessor at Alabama with being the quick game quarterback, right? And Mac plays better in the quick game than Tua by far. Like Tua is good in the quick game. Matt is Mac is great in the quick game. And if I was a Patriots fan, I'd be pretty darn excited because he is operating that offense at a very capable level. You know, we're six games in and he's giving them a chance. 
that is, I think, above and beyond what you can really expect from most rookie quarterbacks. And he looks pretty composed doing it. He's taking shots, hanging in the pocket, finding receivers. Is the deep arm ever really going to be there? No. Is he taking two or three deep shots to keep the defense loose every game? Yeah, he is. He's picking his spots. Are they all great? They're not. It's a nice balance from a rookie quarterback, and he's only going to get better. I think it's nice to keep those expectations in check. He's never going to be the transcendent physical talent, but can he be a very good quarterback that moves a football team in very effective and efficient ways? He already is. I do want to talk about that touchdown to Kendrick Bourne for a second, by the way, because I mentioned it was a hospital ball that very easily could have got Kendrick Bourne split in half if DeMonte Casey took any angle that wasn't complete shit. Um, People were kind of ragging on Diggs for that. I don't necessarily think that one was his fault because there was a great tweet. I'm trying to remember who put it out. might have been Dalton Miller. Um, where it showed the all 22 and like he was in phase on that route after the speed turn. Like people were saying like, Oh, he got turned around. It's like, that's, that's an actual technique. It's called a speed turn. It's so that you can transition faster against a double move and then get back in phase on the low shoulder. The reason why he was on the low shoulders, because the route was stemming up the numbers. If you're in a one high look, the free safety should be able to get anywhere in between the numbers. So he's not going to try to get back over the top and play top down as if it was a stem outside the numbers because he knows that theoretically he should have help. And he was right. He should have had help. KZ should have taken a better angle. So he intentionally kind of sagged underneath in case the ball was left short and inside or, you know, potentially if it was like a a deep seven or something or like a comeback or something like that. He was intentionally playing low shoulder because he's supposed to against that far inside of a stem and KZ just blew it. So if you want to blame anybody for it, blame KZ. I don't necessarily think it was Diggs fault. And I think the fact that he had the awareness to not panic and just immediately get back on low shoulder and be in position, knowing where his safety was supposed to be. I think actually that was a, a, a good play by Diggs and it kind of showed that he's a really, really smart corner. And I think if, if people saw the all 22 of it and if they understood leverage and coverage responsibilities and everything like that, I think that people would be giving a little bit more props to Diggs and a little bit more blame on KZ. Yeah, even if you see the TV coverage, because um, I didn't watch the all 22, on TV coverage, you know that he's low bracket on that throw, right? And he should be. Mm-hmm. He is waiting for KZ. Her, turns out it was KZ, but he's waiting for the deep post safety to come over the top, right? That's That's that play. On that route, inside, he stays under, and you can see when the ball goes over his head, like he's like, you got to be there at the same time as the ball. And KZ was, Bourne went up, you know, cut it off, and KZ was like, oh, crap. (laughs) It was, you know, two steps by with momentum, but it wasn't going to happen, and Diggs wasn't going to catch him. And I think that's, it's one of those things, Pat Kerwin had that great book that he wrote called Take Your Eye Off the Ball. Right. So you focus on the other things. And, and as you start to watch football more and, and pick it apart and understand how all the pieces are working together, you don't watch the ball. You watch the line or you watch the blocking, or you watch the releases, you watch the things that are going on away from the ball. And most people's eyes, if they're watching the ball, they come into that play with the ball. They see Casey go over. The next thing they see is digs three yards behind Bourne. And they're like, 
Diggs got burned. And you're like, well, that's the way it looks, but that's not it. He was where he was supposed to be underneath playing bracket, right? He's fully expecting help over the top on that route. So I'm with you that it's, you know, it's a bad look for Diggs, but he did what he was supposed to do. And Casey should have leveled Bourne and he missed him. He thought he could go for the ball. Bourne cut it off. And that's the difference, right? I guarantee you the, the person whose opinion really matters in that play is Dan Quinn's. And when Dan Quinn watches that back, he's going to be like, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't Trayvon's fault. He's he's fine. He did get another pick in this game, by the way, a pick six. So seven and yeah, not just a in pick, six a weeks. Pick six. Uh, yeah, to to put them back ahead. And then, of course, there was the touchdown right after that. But, you know, continuing his his march towards uh, defensive player of the year consideration by just giving up a lot of yards, but also getting a lot of turnovers. And I have no idea, you know, what the formula is for how many acceptable yards you're allowed to give up as long as you keep turning the ball over and scoring with it. But he's pretty close to, to being over the threshold, I would say. His burst on that pick six, like he's, he's a converted wide receiver. People keep talking about that, right? He's got hands of a wide receiver for sure. His burst after he got the ball in his hands on that pick six, he... He looked, it looks, it kind of looked like Derrick Henry's run against the Bills, where Derrick Henry comes in, two guys have angle, and, you know, the ball carrier's gone. Like, there looked like there were a couple guys that had a shot on Diggs, and his burst about five yards after he picked that ball off was like, okay, you've got some acceleration, son. And he, he put that ball in the end zone because of it. And he's a. <laughs> He's the most dangerous weapon in the league on defense right now uh, because he is giving his offense so many more possessions. And this week, he turned it into points. He didn't even give it back to his offense. He was like, I'll do it. I got it. I'll, I'll come back out. It's cool. <laughs> Speaking of Derrick Henry, by the way, three up number three was Derrick Hen uh, Henry, excuse me, firmly entering MVP discussion with all of these quarterbacks, Lamar, Dak, Kyler, uh, Brady, all of them. You know, Derrick Henry throwing his hat in the ring. 20 carries, 143 yards, three touchdowns. He is on pace, believe it or not. I have it, I have it up here. 2,218 yards, 28 touchdowns, no fumbles. If that's not MVP caliber numbers, I mean... Adrian Peterson won it with a lot less than that. And not to mention, you know, people say, well, running back's not valuable. Well, not every running back is Derrick Henry, and there's no way they win that game without him. They probably get completely blown off the field without Derrick Henry because Buffalo was playing well. Like, Buffalo didn't even play poorly. They they played a, a pretty typical Buffalo kind of game. Like, it ended up 31-34, so Josh Allen did his thing. It's just that Derrick Henry completely obliterated that defense. He wore them down over and over and over again to the point where on that last play, they went for it on fourth and inches from like the three-yard line or whatever it was on that sneak because they had zero confidence that if the Titans won the toss that they were going to be able to stop Derrick Henry. They, they thought it was going to be another Seattle situation that you and I saw live when we saw Derrick Henry do the same thing to Seattle in overtime. If if the Titans win that toss, game's over. And that was on Buffalo's mind of like, look, we haven't stopped him all day. We don't think we could stop him again. We'd rather go for it now than have to deal with Derek. 
and they they couldn't get it, obviously, and they lost the game. But that's the kind of effect that Derrick Henry has on a football game is that he he scares teams into not wanting to play defense. And this is arguably the best defense in the league. And they didn't even want to trust him in overtime. That's how good Derrick Henry is. That's how dominant he is. 250 pounds that can run over 21 miles per hour on that long touchdown. Fastest ball carrier time in the entire league this entire season. And it's a 250-pound running back. Are you kidding me? He is one of one. Yeah, somebody posted on Twitter. So my uh, running back coaching strategy should be, you know, grab converted DNs and teach them to run as fast as wide receivers. <laughs> that that sounds workable. And, and that's why you can't. That's why he is one-on-one. That's why he is a dominant force. The, the thing everybody kept saying, and it almost reminds me, we talked last week about the Lamar arguments, right? Oh, they'll figure him out, right? And to a point, people had started to figure out how to limit Derrick Henry at the start of last season. And it was in any way to get him going laterally because he is not a great 90 degree cut guy. He's not a great jump stop guy. He's got a lot of mass, right? He's a good North South one cut guy and he's a great tackle breaking guy. But if you can get him going laterally, typically you can limit, not stop Derrick Henry, right? Well, Arthur Smith last season in Tennessee adjusted that. So there were less chances for him to get turned to the outside. It was keeping him in that V in the middle of the game and keeping his strengths, which are size and speed and the ability to break tackles. The the total he has of yards after contact keeps growing every week and it's obscene. Like one other running back in the league has more yards, period, in the last two years than he has yards after contact. It <laughs> reminds me of those comparisons of like, you know, Kobe's first half of his career and his second half of his career or points that Michael Jordan scored in 23. And then when he shifted to 45, like you have two hall of fame careers in one player, like you have yards before contact with Derrick Henry and you have yards after contact. And if you divided that into two separate running backs, they would still both be in like top 10 in the league. So the thing about Henry that really amazes me is he gets a huge workload right? He gets hundreds of carries every year and they are tough carries. Again, he is best between, you know, just outside between tackles, like from just off tackle to just off tackle. That is where Henry eats and that generates a lot of contact. And you would think that after a while parts would wear down, right? His, his knees would get bad his ankles would get bad all the things that running backs and and folks that take a lot of contact complain about he's still really fast again fastest ball carrier in the league that's all wide receivers all tight ends guys like lamar guys like kyler nobody's hit a higher top speed than henry did in the sixth game of the year as a 250 pound running back that gets hundreds of touches a year. That's the thing that amazes me is the durability. And he has not, most guys that are speed-based, and it's hard to say he's speed-based because he's <laughs> speed-based and size-based, and both are elite, right? Both are at the top 99th percentile. He hasn't lost 
any of his lust for running people over. He hasn't lost any of that lightning burst once he gets into the secondary. Like, here we are in year whatever it is at yard, you know, multiple of 10,000, whatever it is, and he just keeps going at top speed, running people over, wearing people down, popping, you know, 70 and 80 yard runs. They they mentioned who had the most runs of 75 yards or more. There's a, you know, there's like five guys in the conversation all time. And Derrick Henry's one of them, not surprisingly. He just, he has it all. And you see defenses like you, <laughs> you saw Jordan Poyer on the, on the, I think it was the second touchdown that Henry had. And he was in front of the sort of touchdown cam. And he just turned around and went, fuck. <laughs> just as loud as he could and that's what you've got to feel like as a defender playing against Derrick Henry because we saw it when we went to the Seahawks game they played him really well for the first half Derrick Henry got basically nothing in the first half and in the second half he opened them like a can right he just pried them open ran them into overtime and you know ran Tennessee home with a win it's so frustrating because he's so big he's so fast he doesn't wear down. He runs all day and you'll just eventually lose. And that's just disheartening. I, I do want to say shout out to Micah Hyde, though, because he's played against Henry multiple times and he's he a knows. nominee for bootleg shot of the week this week. He was coming from the deep post. Henry was full speed, full, I mean, full speed. And he knew he's like, oh, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt a lot but I got to do it or it's going to be a touchdown. And, and he went low. <laughs> Henry just ran his ass over. He got the tackle, but he paid for it, you know, damn near yep. with his life. But I wanted to, I wanted to say a shout out to Micah Hyde for, you know, basically just volunteering to be a, a, a crash test dummy for, for a play there. Cause there's, there was nothing else he could do other than just close his eyes and wait for it. <laughs> that That is personal courage. Like there are many guys, most guys, uh, in fact, I've seen two other clips of safeties playing against not Derrick Henry uh, over the last couple of weeks where they just kind of let up, <laughs> just literally let up and don't have to name names. But if you look at all 22, you will see guys just flat out go, I, I'm not gonna don't want it. I don't right. Want it. And Micah Hyde said, I don't want to, but I'm gonna anyways and got folded like a bad suit. But he got him down and that's a victory for for anybody in front of Derrick Henry with a head of steam so that that takes a lot of guts right stand in front of a basically a rolling truck and go I got it (laughs) okay I uh I also want to mention by the way uh, shout out to Josh Allen played his ass off 350 yards great game three touchdowns like he he really played well Uh um you know, came down to obviously the last play. Some people say he slipped. Some people say, you know, Jeff Simmons I re-watched that. made him slip. <laughs> yeah, I rewatched that. His, I watched his, I watched it in super slow motion, and because I thought the same thing from the wide TV angle, definitely looked like he slipped, like he just didn't get traction. Nope, he got traction on both cleats, and. Simmons hit him hard enough that he was braced and his feet just gave because the combination yeah. between cleat and turf was the first thing that was the low, the weakest link in the chain. He didn't slip. He got made 
to slip because Jeffrey Simmons is a mountain of a dude and he played that as well as you possibly could. And look, Josh Allen is not a small guy. He is athletic. He's no, powerful. He's, he is big. He's just as big as Derrick Henry. He's like 6'5", 250. And Simmons made him slip. He had plenty of bite in the cleats. And when you run into a 300-pound guy, basically 300-pound guy that wants to oppose you going the other way, sometimes your feet give way. And that's what happened. Uh, Harold Dendry, by the way, we mentioned him last week. Um Number two overall in pressures, he had 30 going into week six, was the only guy in the NFL that had uh, five pressures in every single game. Well, he got five more in this game and two sacks to, to, to add on top of it. So he's at seven sacks in six games, 35 pressures, elite, elite, elite numbers. He does it differently than I would say a lot of other edge rushers that are in that tier of pressure rate. Max Crosby's doing it, mostly coming off the edge and on stunts. Miles Garrett, same thing, mostly coming off the edge. They'll line up at three-tech every now and then. He'll go beat up a guard. But Landry, he's kind of getting his pressures a little bit differently than everybody else. A lot of stunts. They'll put him at, like, Mike Linebacker and bring him on a a, a blitz and just go beat up a running back. Uh, He will come off the edge sometimes. You get some effort sacks. Like he gets pressures from every single different direction. How they deploy him is really fascinating to me, but he's been monstrously effective in, I think, a contract year for him. I think it's his year number four now. Um, I'm really intrigued to see what happens with him this offseason because, again, he's so much, he's used so much differently than every other edge rusher, quote unquote, in his tier of pressures that I don't. I honestly don't really know how to value him. Like, I know he's really good, but I don't know how the Titans are going to value him because he's just not like everybody else. Yeah, and the thing that kills me about Landry is the absolute radio silence on him. Like, you Mm -hmm. can spin the dial on every sports show, on the radio, on TV, uh, on the internet, like us, you know, podcasts, morning sports broadcasts, talk radio. Now, I don't live in Nashville, <laughs> but you watch any of the national shows, and I haven't heard his name once. Like, not a whisper. Not, hey, by the way, you know, Harold Landry's having a good season, moving on. Like, not even a glance mentioned. And I find that so fascinating because he is being incredibly productive and he is used a little bit differently and his team is not playing super great. They're playing up and down, They're playing good football. Maybe we'll start to hear it because, again, he picked up two more sacks against a, you know, premier team in the in league. prime time. But nothing i was waiting for it i was like okay we talked about him last week here it comes like you're gonna hear it somebody's gonna somebody's gonna pop him off on a major morning show nope nothing you could hear a pin drop over here in harold landry's name and that's fascinating to me but thinking about that usage there are you know he's no player is valued equally to all teams there are very few players that are like scheme agnostic where people are just like give them to me like i think all 32 teams would be like yeah we can probably figure out what to do with miles garrett right (laughs) but a guy like harold landry is is going to be more attractive to some teams because of that varied usage and other teams are not even really going to look at him because they're going to be like 
their defensive coordinator's like, nope, don't have a role for him. Like, don't use that guy. He's not going to be worth his money. And rightfully so, if they're smart enough to do that. But in thinking about teams that would be really interesting for him, he'd be a ton of fun um, in the AFC North. <laughs> he'd, he'd be a lot of fun for the Steelers because I think they'd figure it out. He'd be a lot of fun for the Ravens. I think Martindale would do some really fun stuff with Harold Landry. So, But it is interesting. There are teams that just flat out will look at him and go, nope, not a value. Let's move on down to uh, three down here. You know, three teams, players, organizations, anything that that kind of had a bad week. Really, it's been kind of a bad season, I would say, for for Jared Goff. He has. Now, I want to be somewhat fair here. Somewhat the the Lions roster and offensive play calling support structure around Jared Goff is not the same in Detroit as he was getting in LA. But I will say that his complete and utter lack of success in Detroit kind of spells out how much that supporting structure mattered to him. He's he's not a guy that I think is going to lift up a franchise above their talent level or potentially above their coaching situation like some other quarterbacks around the league do. He is kind of proving to be a product of what L.A. did for him at the time. You know, Sean McVay, great play caller. Um, They had a great offensive line. You know, prime Todd Gurley was arguably the best running back in the league at that time. They had great receivers. They had great tight ends. They had great defenses. When the team around him and the coaching staff around him was amazing, they went to the Super Bowl. When it's less than amazing, they're 0-6. And I think when you when you look at what Jared Goff has done this year, like statistically and on film, it's just atrocious. Like I, I understand he's third most in the league in terms of dropbacks under pressure. So the offensive line has not been protecting that well. But on those dropbacks under pressure, because he's Jared Goff and he's not super physically talented and he's not necessarily great uh, as a decision maker under pressure, his quarterback rating is like, 51, you know, no touchdowns, three picks under pressure. You compare that to Josh Allen, who is leading the leagues, uh, leading the league, excuse me, in dropbacks under pressure. So it's not an excuse because Josh Allen has even more than him. He's got a, a, a passer rating in the mid 90s. He's got six touchdowns and only one pick under pressure. So that's kind of the difference in terms of having a great quarterback that can still, you know, take some lemons and make lemonade versus a not great quarterback where if he's under pressure or if maybe he doesn't have great coaches or or great receivers, great run game, he's he's kind of lifeless, you know? So I, I don't necessarily want to hear an excuse that, you know, well, he needs a team around him. Well, if, if a quarterback needs a team around him in order to succeed – and to not be terrible, then maybe you should get a new quarterback because most NFL organizations, because of how the cap is structured and how the draft is structured, it's hard to have a great roster for a long period of time. Eventually, your talent level is going to fall off and you need a quarterback that can still keep the franchise afloat while teams reload. Jared Goff can't do that. So I think this is showing why the Rams traded for Stafford and why they got rid of Goff because 
he's just not that guy. Yeah, this was a flyer by Detroit. We don't we don't want to act surprised by this, and we actually held off for several weeks because this was largely expected. Detroit was gonna struggle this year. They were in a massive roster hole. It is a huge amount of change for the organization. New GM, new head coach, tons of new players that always occur during that. And this was a calculated choice by Detroit. They were trading someone that they were going to have to pay a ton of money to. They got a bunch of draft picks in return, and they got a quarterback that they felt like they could take a chance with, but they didn't expect Jared Goff to be a franchise savior. All that being said, his level of play, any of the plus plays or traits that you got to see McVeigh eke out of Jared Goff because of system, supporting cast, uh, you know, <laughs> pre-snap headset adjustments, like, are all up in smoke because he doesn't have that in Detroit. And even if you expected a midline level of play, he's been below it. He was okay, and I do mean okay in a fairly generous sense for the first four weeks. But over the last two weeks, uh, weeks five and six, he's just falling off the table. So we're going to use a stat that you may not be familiar with, adjusted yards per attempt, AY slash A. It's a fairly good measure of quarterback efficiency. How many adjusted yards sort of based on expectation are they getting per attempt? Higher number is better. He has an average or adjusted yards per attempt of 4.13 over the last two weeks. Now, we're going to talk about some other quarterback stats as we move on, and you're going to hear very different numbers. Um, His numbers over the first four weeks were average, slightly higher than that 4.13. The last two weeks, I think you're really seeing what Jared Goff does when not surrounded by top-tier talent or top-tier coaching. Um, And that's, he's missing open wide receivers downfield. He's checking it down, I would say, relentlessly, like almost as a matter of reflex. He's folding against the rush, which is coming. He's seeing a lot of pressure, as we mentioned, and looking sort of generally lost for providing any of those value-added plays like, hey, he could have done this or this. Like, that would have been a good thing. This would have been a bad thing. In most of those sort of two-way go situations, he's ending up with the negative result for the play. And he's doing that really consistently. And Detroit's getting kind of fed up with it, which is not surprising. McVay got very fed up with it in his last year in L.A. Um, But Detroit fans are new to the Jared Goff experience, and they are tiring of, oof, this is all there is. And the answer is, yeah, pretty much this is all there is. And the sad part is they kind of knew that. They did it as a salary trade dump to get the picks and they knew they'd probably be moving on from Jared Goff, but they were like, let's take a flyer and see. But Jared Goff is somebody they're going to have to get off their books fairly quickly. They weren't ready to take a quarterback this year and it would have been a bit of a wasted pick. I'm just going to throw that out there. If they had gone for a guy like Justin Fields, the team wasn't ready. Justin Fields would be struggling mightily in, in Detroit too. He would have a few more flash plays, but there's just not enough there in terms of foundation. So Detroit was busy building the foundation on both sides of the line and getting ready for when they go out and select the quarterback they want. And in the meantime, they needed somebody, and this provided them an opportunity to fill that spot. They, You know, if we're being honest, which we usually are, I don't really think they had high expectations for Jared Goff, but even that, they kind of had like, well, maybe he can do this line, and he's 
down here and sliding. And that's a rough place to be. I I do not know who the first quarterback taken in the draft will be yet. You know, we like Malik Willis a lot. We like Matt Corral. There's some other quarterbacks that are super talented as well. Again, I have not, you know, dove in enough to proclaim like, this is the guy. Like no. last year at this point, we were like, yeah, Trevor Lawrence, number one pick. Let's go. Let's fire it up. Um, but all of the top quarterback prospects should probably start looking at houses in the Detroit metro area because as <laughs> as bad as some of these other teams are, I don't think there's anybody as bad as Detroit. I think they're absolutely going to be in position to take whatever quarterback they want this year and then probably have a pick at the top of every subsequent round after that to get receivers and linemen and you know DBs like take your pick whatever they're going to get. Like they are the bottom franchise in the league. And it's not necessarily Dan Campbell's fault. Um, it's no. not necessarily the coaching staff's fault. It's not the front office's fault. The roster is just, it's not good. It's Matt Patricia's <laughs> fault. Is who's it's Matt fault Patricia's it fault, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see their approach. They may not go for a quarterback. They might think they're another half season away. And they may go for a quarterback in the second round. Uh, one of those guys that's at like the fifth or sixth quarterback and say, hey, we're going to we're going to grab this guy. They may not do that. Brad Holmes may not be sold on one of these players and might not put all the eggs in one basket. We might see them grab a second round quarterback and a fourth round quarterback and say one of these, you know, we're going to play these guys in camp and we're going to see. And if we need to go back again to the well next year, we will. This is a multiple year rebuild process. Detroit was as far down talent-wise, as any team in the league. And they've got a long road to hoe. So will they pick a quarterback? Yeah. Will they mortgage the entire franchise future to go get one of these guys? Not if they are not 100% sold. So we could see anything on the table for quarterback acquisition for Detroit in the offseason. But something will happen because they will not try and march Jared Goff out as the sole option for next year. That is suicide, and they know it now. One of these days, Lion fans will get to Halloween and not already be looking at mock drafts. One of these days. One of these I days. feel bad for them. They, they, they've been through a lot. Uh, three down, number two. <laughs> Speaking of going through a lot over the last few weeks, Sam Darnold started out great. You know, I had a fantastic performance, I would say, in the first three weeks relative to maybe what people expected. Um Obviously, the Jets and the Texans were two of those first three games, but you know the Saints' defense is a is a pretty good unit, and he acquitted himself pretty well against them. And then starting with the Dallas game over the last three weeks, a, a switch flipped, and he's not he is not the same as he was earlier in the season. And it's not just oh well, he's playing better teams, like on film. He doesn't look the same. He's making really bad decisions. He's not been as accurate. Like, a good throw is a good throw. A bad throw is a bad throw. I don't care who it's against. And he's making a lot more bad throws than he's making good throws. Um, and, and again, the decision-making under pressure in particular has been really egregious. Speaking of pressure rate, we talked about how Josh Allen's had the most dropbacks under pressure in the league, and he's played really well under pressure. And Jared Goff's third in dropbacks under pressure, and it's played really bad. Well, Sam Darnold's second. He's sandwiched right between them, but he also has played really bad. Only one touchdown, four picks under pressure. 
And it's kind of a different situation than Goff, whereas Goff just doesn't necessarily have the physical talent to really, you know, get out of pressure and, you know, make crazy plays on the run and everything like that. Like Sam Darnold is a lot more physically talented than Jared Goff, but his decision-making when guys are in his face has just been atrocious. It's led to some really bad turnovers, um, just some really inexcusable decisions. And I, I just don't know what happened because he was playing so clean in the first three weeks. And then like something happened in the Dallas game and it just went completely downhill from there. And now it almost feels like Carolina's kind of dragging Sam Darnold and not necessarily the other way around. Like I, maybe Christian McCaffrey being hurt really did matter that much. I don't know. If this was a book, it would start off, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? This is a tale of two cities, but it's a tale of two Sam Darnolds. The first three weeks, 68% completion percentage, we all saw it. He looked sharp, he looked dangerous. He was using the wide receiver core that they have, which is very talented. Um, He's making a lot of plays, and the Panthers looked like a force. Um, So almost 70% completion percentage, again, that... Adjusted yards per attempt stat versus the Jets, New Orleans, and Houston, 8.54. Remember, Goff's over the last two weeks is 4.13. Against New Orleans, it was 7.89. Pretty consistent, right around the 8 mark. And against Houston, a little higher, 8.94, almost 9. So 8.5, 8.9 for the first three weeks. That's a good solid number for adjusted yards per attempt. It it reflected what we were seeing on the field. Sam Darnold being efficient, taking advantage of opportunities, uh, pushing the Panthers to scores through the air. And then <laughs> comes <laughs> Dallas, Philadelphia, and Minnesota. He drops in the Dallas game to 6.44. Now you might say, oh, that doesn't sound like a huge drop. Well, it's a one-quarter drop from where he was. It's over a 25% drop from his standard for the first three weeks. So everybody has blips during the season. You might think, oh, okay, that's not bad. The next week at Philly, the wheels fall off. 1.68 adjusted yards per attempt. I don't think I've ever seen an adjusted yards per attempt under 1.95. Like, like one six eight is one of the lowest numbers I've ever seen. Looking at that stat, it's horrendous. It's terrible. It means you probably would have been better off if you sat on the bench for your team and they brought in whoever was <laughs> behind you because they probably put a would have put up a three and a half or a four. You know, you put up under two. That's that's really bad. He rebounds a little bit, but again, we talked about Goff having a really low number at four point one three. Against Minnesota, Sam Darnold was 4.44. So we've gone 6.4, 1.6, 4.4 over the last three weeks. Completely different than that sort of 8, 8.5, 9 average he had over the first three weeks. And it's looked like that on film. You can take all the statistics you want. I don't care whether you're an analytics person or not. And sometimes it doesn't match. This matches. Darnold played great for the first three weeks. He gave his team lots of chances, kept him in games. Kept him right at the front of games. The last three weeks, he's looked like he's costing them games. And that is a switch flipped that, again, because the bad stuff is more recent, you have to be concerned about for the Panthers going forward. If you're a Panthers fan, this is something to worry about. This is going on a month worth of, ugh, this guy's really not helping us. And in fact, 
He's limiting our chances to win in what is a very competitive division and a very competitive league. So I was really excited about Darnold in Carolina. The first three games looked really good. I was like, aha, see, that's what he looks like when he doesn't work for Adam Gase. And now I'm like, ooh, did the DCs all just get film? And this is what we're going to get for the next umpteen weeks? I hope not for Carolina's sake. They have picks in next year's draft. They could also go up for quarterback. But if Darnold doesn't turn the ship around here, they're going to have to do something. That's that's not a sustainable rate of play if you're going to try and win games in your division. And the team's too talented to really put up with that for a long stretch. Well, if, if Darnold doesn't turn it around, I mean, they only spent a second-round pick on him, so it's not like they, they did a massive investment. Mm-mm. But they passed on a quarterback at eight overall or nine overall. I think it was I think it was eight. They passed on a quarterback in the top ten because they're like, well, we got Sam Darnold. Even though Justin Fields was on the board, Mac Jones, who's played really well, was on the board. Like Mac Jones is playing better than Sam Darnold is. <laughs> so it's For like sure. if they had Mac Jones right now, they might have actually they might not be three and three. They might be four and two. They might be five and one. Whatever it is, because the defense has has played well. Maybe not the last couple of weeks, but uh, overall, the defense, I think, is a pretty good unit. Um, and obviously, they have weapons and everything like that. Like, there's arguably a better supporting cast in Carolina than there is in New England for Mac Jones. And Mac Jones playing better, you know. And then Justin Fields, he's kind of got dicked over by Matt Nagy a little bit in his first few weeks. So, we'll we'll see what he ends up being. But either way, Carolina passed on the chance to take a talented young quarterback, regardless of, wh- of whoever you liked in this class, because they got Sam Darnold. If Sam Darnold doesn't work out and then they can't get lucky and get a quarterback in the future, next class, that like that decision, as much as we love J.C. Horn, that decision is going to haunt them because they're going to be like, shit, we had a chance and we passed it up. So, yeah, <laughs> just just for reference, Mac Jones against Dallas, which is, I would say, a far superior defense to Philadelphia. Uh so uh, if we want to compare apples to apples, uh, Sam Darnold's adjusted yards per attempt against Dallas was 6.44. That was the beginning of his slide. Uh, Mac Jones just played Dallas and his adjusted yards per attempt in that game versus Dallas, 10.9. No shit. Really? Four yards higher uh, than Sam Darnold if we're going apples to apples. And if we're just going week to week, you know, the last week Sam Darnold played, he was 4.44. The last week Mac Jones played, he was 10.9. Talking about a six-yard wow. difference per attempt. So when you talk about efficiency and outcome, yeah, Mac Jones is playing better than Sam Darnold, like, by a bunch. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll see him get to uh, try to get back on track this week against our third section of three down, which is the New York Giants, specifically um, Dave Gettleman, who in his in his tenure, you know, in the first six weeks of every single season under Gettleman, it's one and five, one and five, two and four, one and five, one and five. It's, you know, we're going on four or five years of this, of like, oh, this is the year. The rebuild's coming. The rebuild is almost done. We just need one more draft. And it's just consistently, by Halloween, season's over. Every single year. And Giants fans are sick of it. They've, they, I mean, they wanted to change last year and didn't get it. 
but the decisions in the draft year after year come back to haunt this team because they might get one guy, two guys that's like a solid contributor every single class, but they don't get any stars. They don't get any like true difference maker. Like the one difference maker, quote unquote, Saquon Barkley can't get on the field because he's constantly hurt. So it's like, does that even really qualify anymore? Like you look back at his last four drafts. So we'll start at 2018 when he took over the job. Took Saquon in the top five, who again, great player, can't stay on the field. The only other good player I would say he got from that class and and good as subjective here is Will Hernandez, who's like a solid interior lineman, who's also had some injury issues, but solid at best. Okay, so that's like a passable pick. Everybody else in the class, take it or leave it at, at best. And then we go to the next year. That's the Daniel Jones class. We took Daniel Jones, top 10, who might be solid. Uh, you know, started out the season okay and then kind of went back the last couple weeks into playing, um, let's just say, loose with the football. Um, not necessarily making great decisions, in my opinion. I mean, four turnovers. In one game, like again, he he went uh, five weeks. I mean, turned it over a couple times, but it played a lot cleaner. Sure. And then all of a sudden, he's like back on pace to what he was in one game against the Rams. Two fumbles, one of them lost, three picks. He's right back on pace to having that normal Daniel Jones turnover Palooza type season in one week. And he's he's part of a class where it's like, okay, who who else did they take that year? Dexter Lawrence, probably the best player they took in that Good class. Player. So it's like your, your best player you got is a nose tackle. DeAndre Baker, O'Shane Jimenez, Julian Love. Like maybe Darius Slayton is the best player they got out of that class. But like, again, that's a wide receiver three, wide receiver four that you're hanging your hat on in your second draft class. Year after that, Andrew Thomas, you take as the offensive tackle. And he's he has not played better than the other three tackles taken in that draft range. Not even close. Like he's Xavier playing McKinney better this year. This year, but like you compare it to Worfs, you compare it to no, Wills, you, no. it's not it's not even close. So, and then this this it's unfair to judge this class yet, but like maybe Kadarius Tony is like the one star quality player he's drafted in four years. Like it's maybe, not good. We'll enough. see. Like you said, it's early to judge, but it's uh, Giants fans and I. I, as much as anybody, or, or maybe more, I'll just own up to it, have given Dave Gettleman a lot of crap because I I felt bad when he took the Giants job for Giants fans because I was like, you know what you're getting. He's not one of those guys that's going to change his stripes, uh, you know, mid-shift and go, hey, I'm going to be completely different and change up my approach. Gettleman is well-established, and he likes it that way. He has his tendencies he believes in them and he is not gonna shift them up he has a very long tenure in the nfl and that led me to believe that he would not likely have a ton of success with the giants moving forward because his viewpoint is not terribly what i would call flexible or adaptable he believes in a certain thing which may have at one point been the best way to build teams the league has moved on and Dave hasn't, and we're seeing that. If you are a fan of a franchise, and we both know Giants fans, and your team is always out of the running by Halloween, 
Like, think about that. Midway through October, week before Halloween, and your team is buried at one and five, one and five, two and four, one and five, one and five. This is not a one-time result or a if we hadn't been injured result or a if this guy had panned out result. This is four to five years worth of one or two wins in the first two months of the season. It's not ever going to get it done. You're not going to get a division title like that. You're not going to have an easy road to the playoffs and forget competing in the playoffs. Like you're, you can't kick your way out of the cellar at this point. Like the approach isn't working. We almost rolled Joe judge into this. He's been the core. He's been the coach for the last couple of years. Uh, it seems like the locker room is tiring of his sort of drill sergeant antics, a uh, bunch of, uh, primetime shows, including Dan Orlovsky went after him this, this week, called him Timmy tough nuts, you know, locker room doesn't, I'm like sorry, Timmy. what? Yeah. Orlovsky <laughs> said, look, guys in the locker room don't like, and I'm quoting Dan here, Timmy tough nuts coaches when you're down 28 to three at half. Um, <laughs> and his fellow panelists lost it. Uh, but you know, it, look, the entire thing right? You just look at the organization overall, the success. You talked about draft. We talk about results on the field. We talk about development with coaches. We talk about is the locker room buying in? Are the coaches leading these men in a unified way to compete? And the answer is clearly sort of no, 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 and no. At this point, it's a blow it up type situation. It's it's much like Detroit was last year. Like, hey, we've given you three years of run. You got all your players. You installed all your systems, and you're still losing. You know, far more games than the guy that was here previously. We're gonna we're gonna wipe the slate clean. We're gonna start over. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen to the Giants in the off season. I know, you know, the Maras like stability. They are an old school NFL franchise. They want to have. You know, they're not prone to be knee-jerk this isn't knee-jerk anymore this team has been very bad for the last five years there isn't anything like oh well if you give these last two classes a chance we're really going to be at the top of the division i don't think anybody has that hope right now this is a wipe the board clean and start over kind of situation and that sucks for giants fans because it's going to take a couple of years to get that ship righted also i mean just look at the division like i'm just assuming Dallas is going to let Mike McCarthy go at the end of the year and promote Kellen Moore to keep him from leaving because he's the most important coach they have. Kellen Moore and Dak Prescott are going to run this division for 10 years unless they do something. Like, they they cannot sit back and not try to blow it up and just suck it up, be bad this year, get a good pick, get a better GM, get a better coach, take your swing at another quarterback. And, and hope that he's better than Daniel Jones has been. Because we are, how many years into, we're three years into Daniel Jones, and he's still having games of five, or four turnovers, almost five turnovers. Like, it's not it's not acceptable. And, like, you're you're going into an offseason where you have to start thinking about, God, are we, are, are we going to, are we going to be paying this guy? Are, are, are we really going to be doing that? So it's like... No. It's a fascinating study, though, because it's not as... I said it was like Detroit in terms of just sustained periods of non-success, but their player base is better than the Lions. Like, they're better along both lines. A little bit. They're better than the Lions. Not, not by a lot. <laughs> not by a ton, but they have more 
talent invested along the lines, which again, if you get a coaching staff that changes the situation and more of those guys resonate, um, you know, they got some talented guys, uh, you know, some, con again, contributor guys, not star guys. And you need stars for sure, but they need a quarterback for sure. And we know a quarterback can change fortunes. So if they do get that high quarterback that fits, they get a coach that can bring some extra things out of the talent they have because they're not bereft of talent, right? They're not loaded by any stretch, but they're not completely bottom out. So they could be a shorter turnaround than a place like Detroit. It's still going to take at least a season, maybe a season and a half, but they could be one of those teams if they get a quarterback and a new coaching staff. They have a decent draft next year with that new staff. They start playing well, say, at the end of next year. I know this isn't what Giants fans want to hear, but if they start playing well at the end of next year, they could be one of those teams that starts going on a run uh, in the NFC East, you know, season after next, which is not a three-year rebuild. That's like a year-and-a-half rebuild. Um, so, or reload, or whatever you want to call it. So, it, it'll be fascinating to see how they go. If they retain the coach and the GM, my condolences. That's all I got. I I would be stunned and also really sad for Giants fans. They don't deserve that. Both. They just don't. Yeah. It's Both. it's it's too depressing to even think about. Um let's move on to three interesting. Number one, uh the Raiders winning that game in I mean, it's just it, it's unprecedented circumstances to have that kind of emotional week you know your your coach resigning um you know your locker room in complete shock you're going on the road to a division opponent hostile environment and to put on that kind of performance um you know shout out to the Raiders coaching staff shout out to Derek Carr shout out to the defense and I I mean hats off to Max Crosby like he's becoming so much more than I think anybody ever thought he could be. Like, he was athletic. He played with grit. He was an effort guy for the first couple years in the league. But he's completely reshaped his body. He's bigger and stronger than he ever was before. So now he can win with power and effort. Um, his hands are incredible. Like, he's so good in terms of being able to neutralize tackles, punches, and just get them swiping at air. Like, he is a complete defensive end in every sense of the word. And it's kind of amazing that they got him in the fourth round and they took Cleland Furl fourth overall that same year, and Furl doesn't even play. Like, Max Crosby is the guy that ended up outplaying their fourth overall pick by orders of magnitude. Yeah, and he's... You brought up a lot of good points about Max. I just I was watching the Raiders this week to see how they'd respond because I had no idea. Like you said, this is unprecedented. There isn't a like, well, this team did this and this team did this when they hit this situation. Like they hadn't hit this situation. It's a divisional game. It's a historic rivalry between the Raiders and the Broncos. Um, Broncos aren't tearing it up this year, but they're a very talented team. And it easily could have been a kind of trap game for a, a team that was reeling in the Raiders. And instead, they came out, they put their foot down, they notched a divisional win that was not by happenstance. They they won that game. They made it happen. Um, and they got contributions on both sides of the ball. That's a really impressive performance as a team 
to come in on a basically a short week with an interim head coach who has looked very experienced. It's not like this is somebody that's green behind the gills, but it's his first ever head coaching experience in a very long coaching career to see them rally as a team for each other, for the coaches, for the city, for the organization. It was really impressive. So credit to the Raiders for that. The Max thing is fascinating. I I did full work up on Max when he was coming out. He was, he tested very well, but didn't always show that way on the field. He was a little bit gangly. He wasn't filled out like he is now. His body has changed significantly. If you put a side-by-side of this year's Max Crosby and his senior season in college, it's, it's not even the same guy, right? And he won late in the down more often than not. He was the guy that would just keep going. He wouldn't give up. He would win on his second or his third or his fourth move. Or when the quarterback started to bolt, he would throw his guy off and go get him. He was not a guy that typically won on a first move or early in the down. He wins everywhere now. He wins early in the down. He wins with speed because he he did, again, test very well. But he didn't have the full package to take advantage of that speed. He wasn't strong enough to hold off. NFL offensive tackles. So he's continued to work. He's continued to work on his body. He's continued to work on his hands. He's continued to work on his speed. You see him win around the edge with speed. You see him win with what I'll say is complex hand usage. You see him win with power now, which is not something he did in college at all. And you still see him win those late in the down effort sacks. He had one this week where he played off his man, Quarterback went one way, quarterback went the other way. He finally tossed guy and gets together about four and a half seconds in, five seconds into the down, sandwiches him with another defensive end, picks up the sack. That's the kind of sack he had in college. So he's kept that, but he's added everything else and moved kind of what I would call to earlier and earlier wins in the down. And he's as complete as anybody. The production, which is always a little bit finicky, whether it's pressures or sacks, is so far above the mean right now. That kind of growth out of a player at a premium position that you get in the fourth round is largely unexpected. I don't want to say unprecedented because it has happened before. It's rare. So enjoy it, Raiders fans. Max Crosby looks like a fixture for a while for the entire defense. There's a uh, a comeback from the dead story for this Halloween season we should talk about for three interesting number two. Carson Wentz, the uh, zombified corpse of of good Carson Wentz, has now reappeared in Indianapolis over the last two weeks. Um, Maybe it's because his dual sprained ankles are feeling better um, (laughs) and his foot injury that he had before the season is feeling... I mean... You you want a mummy joke? He's had a... Huh? You want a mummy joke? Oh, God. Don't even get me... We're not that campy, are we? I'm sure he just taped him up. See, you're, 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 God damn it. Can you tell EJ's a dad? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm Uh, not a dad yet, so I'm not, I'm not biologically. We're we're digging Carson Wentz out of his media grave because look, we all buried him before the season. We all said, Hey, if Frank Wright could do anything with Carson Wentz, it's amazing. Right? Well, for the first three or four weeks, eh, they kind of stumbled along. No ankle jokes, no pun intended there. It didn't it didn't look great. The last two weeks, and somewhat quietly, 
Carson Wentz is back. Like, he's making big-time throws. Last two weeks, 36 of 55. That's 65.5% completion. 625 yards, four TDs, no picks. We talked about that adjusted yards per attempt stat. Carson Wentz's combined for the last two weeks. 12.89. Carson Wentz is ripping the ball. Like, he is back to, like, prime Carson Wentz production. And we haven't seen that in at least a year and a half, probably closer to two. And more than that, even. Yeah, it's amazing, right? This is, like, there was nothing again. He's like the anti-Jared Goff or or the opposite Sam Darnold, right? He had not a lot of mojo for the first three or four weeks, and then... Freaky Friday occurred, and he got all the go-go juice and rose from the grave, and those other guys fell off. He's playing extremely well. If you're a Colts fan right now, and you've got that defense, which we talked about at length last year, you've got all those offensive weapons that we love. Michael Pittman is playing out of his mind, which we expected and predicted. He was one of our 10 gems. Jonathan Taylor's doing Jonathan Taylor things. They've got a deep running back room. Mo Alley-Cox is there. You know... All of a sudden, you're like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) The thing we weren't sure about was the quarterback. And Carson Wentz is basically rewarding the Colts' faith in him over the last couple of weeks in a huge way. And I'm wondering how long it'll take until people start talking about it. Because the last two weeks have been eye-openingly different than the first four weeks. If it continues, Colts are going to be a force. Like, they're probably become the instant favorites to win that division if he continues to play anywhere near this level. Also, I mean, look at the schedule they had to start the season, mm-hmm. which was also probably part of it. You know, they played the Seahawks week one with Russell, and they were still healthy. So Seahawks mm-hmm. with Russell, totally different team. Lost week one, but then they played the Rams tough. Still lost, but they played them tough. Lost the Titans because... It's the Titans, and again, they had not completely imploded with injuries yet at that point. Beat the Dolphins. <laughs> you could argue should have beat the Ravens, but ended up losing that game because, again, it's the Ravens, it's Lamar, it's going to happen. Uh, and then beat the shit out of the Texans. So it's like they're playing top five to six team in the Rams. They're playing top five easily team in the Ravens, probably top three team, and they're not three. Um and, you know, they're losing to a, divi- a tough division rival in the Titans. They're losing to a, a Russell Wilson Seahawks. Like, they don't really have bad losses, quote-unquote, on the resume. They just lost to really good teams, and they're beating who they should beat. They beat the Dolphins, and they crushed the Texans. You know, T.Y. Hilton, speaking of rising from the grave, uh, he heard that they were playing Houston and decided to to go beat T.Y. Hilton again and, and you know, get active, get activated off the bench. <laughs> And then immediately catch a, a deep bomb against Houston because that's all he knows how to do. Um, which was a gorgeous throw by Wentz, by the way. I don't know if you saw the all 22 of that one, but it was sick. And that was the throw that got me up in my, uh, up out of my chair and was like, whoa, that's 2017 Wentz. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is hello. prime Wentz. And that's the thing is when they lost those closer games to good teams like the Seahawks early in the season, Wentz wasn't playing great. Like if you look at his no. first four weeks stats, he played... Pretty average. Now, there's a lot of reason for that. It's a new team. It's adjustment to to scheme, to staff. Like, you're getting your feet under you, and all of a sudden, there was no real indication that 
it was going to take this kind of jump over the last two weeks, but it has. Like, it is all clicking right now. And again, if you're going to go through play tough teams tough and your quarterback's playing like that, you're going to win a couple of those because those are plays that turn games. That kind of throw to T.Y. Hilton that made everybody go, whoa, that's that's a vintage Wentz throw, right? Uh, and then you've beaten the crap out of the teams you should be. That puts you in a pretty good position come the end of the year as to be the division leader and again they're not in a world beating division if they're getting good quarterback play the rest of the team's playing solid like it has throughout the year if they just sort of continue that you add great quarterback play the Colts become a player at the end of the year for sure I'm really like this is going to be one of the teams that I think fascinates me down the stretch because they do have a game against the Jets, which they should win. They're playing the 49ers this week, who have not been playing particularly well, but it's also the 49ers, so you never know what you're going to get. They have a couple games against the Jags, which they should also win. But down that last half of the season, they also play Tennessee again, who's a good team. They play mm-hmm. Buffalo, Tampa, New England, Arizona, and the Raiders. That's like Ow. six of their last eight games. That's murderer's like, row. Wentz is going to have to play brutal. out of his mind. He's going to have to stay it's healthy, brutal. and he's going to have to play out of his mind. That is like, if you could line up, if you could just sort of take the six worst teams, if you're if you're a, if you're a Colts hater, and you're like, who can you pull from the NFL to like shake out of the bag and put on their schedule so that it just buries them? It's like, that's probably like five or six out of the seven or eight teams that you would pick, because that's... That's rugged. All those teams are playing really well. So they're going to have to continue to play, and they're going to have to steal some. I mean, the, the Tampa game in particular is an indie, and as we know, Tom Brady isn't exactly huge fans of the Colts. And uh, angry Tom Brady's the most dangerous man in football. So we'll see how they do. But at least for now, Carson Wentz looking good, and uh, we love to see it. Uh, and then last segment for three interesting here. I want to have a a little chat about one Patrick Mahomes because I think he has ascended into being the man that he has been compared to for so long now. And I think he really is a clone of Brett Favre now where amazing play. Like there was a, there was a throw to Tyreek and I'll, I'll throw it on screen here. I'll throw a couple angles on screen here because there was one that I saw on Twitter that was recorded from the stands where it's like you see it directly from behind Mahomes where he's rolling out to his right and he's like outside the numbers and then throws back to his left too far hash and Tyreek's not even on the screen and then all of a sudden you see this little dude running 4-2 across across the field out of nowhere and catch this ball for a huge gain it's a throw that only Mahomes makes and that's so Brett Favre But then you also look at the 15 picks in the last 15 games. The Chiefs lead the turnover, lead the league in turnovers this year. He's got eight picks this year so far. Not all of them his fault. A few of them are off tip balls. Like one was off Tyreek's hands this week. But then there was the other one where that was completely inexcusable, where it was under pressure and just popped up in the air and got picked again. But he is he is so Brett Favre now, where you're gonna get those random oh my God, interceptions. But you're also going to get all of those crazy, oh my God, throws that still keep the Chiefs in games. And like they were 
they, I mean, they were dead even with Washington in this one. It was like 10 to 13, 13, 13, somewhere around there. And then they exploded in the end of the game and ended up blowing them out. But that is, that is Patrick Mahomes. And it reminds me so much of those like mid to late nineties and early two thousands Packers, which I know, you know, well, you know, pre Aaron Rodgers era where you never really knew what you were going to get, but you knew you were going to be entertained and you knew there was going to be a lot of points on the board. Will the chiefs win the super bowl this year? Um, with this kind of um, up and down, not even up and down, uh, <laughs> this kind of inconsistent result with Mahomes, I, I don't know, because in previous years they had a defense that could make up for the interceptions. This year they don't. Um, but I will say that for the people who think that Mahomes has fallen off, I, I don't think he's fallen off. I just think he he has become what he is, which is a gunslinger, a Brett Favre clone, and still the most exciting quarterback in the league. He's he's in an interesting spot. The Chiefs are in an interesting spot. The defense has to get better or the Chiefs are not really going to threaten deep into the postseason. Will they make the postseason? They might. I would never write them out as long as Pat's healthy. Um, the offensive line has played much better this year than late last year. That's not saying a lot because the line was destroyed last year. Um, but they've had, you know, really good contributions from Creed Humphrey and Smith, Smith. And, you yeah. know, it, two rookies that they didn't necessarily expect to start. You know, it's, it's been much improved, but the defense has turned into ghosts before Halloween, which is not great. Dan Sorensen got himself benched, uh, not surprisingly after multiple, not great performances. I, I but, don't know why Juan Thornhill wasn't playing in the first place. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't really either. Uh, but the Mahomes to Favre thing is interesting because he has that ability to make something out of nothing that very few, if no other quarterbacks can make the throw you're talking about. It's one of them. Uh, he seems to be slipping a little bit more towards that. And I think it's partly pressing knowing that he can't just hand the ball back to the defense and say, hold him and, you know, get it back for me, which he could uh, with some more confidence over the last couple of years. He thinks he has to do it while the ball's in his hands. And that, I don't want to say forces him, I will say causes him to take some of those chances that maybe he had legislated out of his game over the past couple of years. Um, they're going to be really interesting to watch down the stretch because they could absolutely go down on a fireball if they can't get the defensive ship righted. Uh, football's still a team sport. If if the defense is allowing, you know, 35 points a game, uh, it's going to be a really – it's going to be tough sledding for the Chiefs. They're, they're not going to win as many games as they might need to down the stretch. Uh, but watching how Mahomes – adjusts given all of those variables is going to be fascinating because he's a wildly talented physical player. He's pretty healthy this year uh, and he can do pretty much anything from anywhere on the field, which very few, if no other quarterbacks can do in the league. And that makes it a fascinating watch no matter what, because you just, you just don't know if it's going to be that play where he suddenly just, does the jaw dropping oh my god thing because he can do it on any given play so makes the chiefs uh again a fascinating watch down the stretch to see how the whole team evolves and even if not just to watch mahomes be mahomes 
you know, we, we talked about the uh, murderer's row schedule that the Colts have. Five of the Chiefs' next six games, Titans, Raiders twice, Packers, Cowboys. Like, oof. Not not, not a good time to have not a good time no. to have a bad defense. So no. Mahomes is Mahomes is gonna have to be Brett Favre, hopefully minus a few of the interceptions because, like yeah. he's he's gonna have to be superhuman to get them through that stretch. And I do not think that they're gonna uh, if they go f- like five hundred in that stretch. That's a win for them because that like they're playing against more complete football teams that also have really good quarterbacks. And uh, and MVP candidates themselves, like Derrick Henry, MVP candidate, Aaron Rodgers, MVP candidate, Dak Prescott, MVP candidate. You got a defensive player of the year candidate and Max Crosby and Derek Carr is playing really well, too. Like, I don't know. I, I perhaps we vastly overestimated the Chiefs. But if there is one quarterback in the league that can drag this corpse of a defense deep this season, it's it's going to be Pat. Yeah, I just think we we all thought the defense would be decent at least we actually thought it would be pretty good and in it hasn't even been decent it's been terrible and i i don't know anybody that saw that coming there were people that talked about chiefs regression overall as a team but i didn't see anybody preseason that was saying their defense is going to be dog doo-doo historically bad Yeah. yeah and that's largely what it's been it's been really not great so all right ej it is Shot of the week time. And uh, for once, we actually get to celebrate something that the Bears did. Last week's winner, by popular vote. Ooh, it's a nice cork sound for Cazadores. Interesting. It is a nice uh, cork James sound. Daniels delivering the spine buster to, uh, who was it? Denzel Perryman, I think it was. I think was. it was Perryman. On the second yep. level. And just, yep. I mean, it, it was great. I'll, I'll throw the video on the screen so you guys can see it again. Uh, just to, honestly, one of my favorite bootleg shot of the week winners we've ever had. It was awesome, especially for an offensive lineman to get it. Uh, so I want to toast to you, James Daniels. Got my shot at Cazadores. Thank I've, you for finally giving us a Bears highlight to celebrate. I have something interesting. What's I didn't that? drink the whole bottle. So it's Redemption Bourbon. Uh, and I did not drink the whole bottle just for you. Uh, I am using this to make something special for fall, but I saved one shot of it. I was, I'm using the whole rest of the bottle, uh, to make something interesting that I'll share with you later, but I, I took out one, one tiny shot of it. So, um, here's to James Daniels and his, uh, you know, pro class wrestling move of grabbing thigh pads and teaching people not to jump if you're in front of an offensive lineman. goes down to easier every week (laughs) that's good stuff uh it's a good base to start with i will share my fall it's a very fall themed project uh i will share it with you in a in a subsequent show but i have to wait 10 days so oh now i'm intrigued i know you Um, should be this is right up your alley too you're gonna you're gonna love this so i'm excited but no the redemption all by itself good stuff this week's nominees for shot of the week uh, number one, we got Randy Gregory absolutely detonating Mac Jones' ribcage. Really quick win around the edge. Mac never saw him coming. Forced the fumble, which uh, ended up being a turnover in favor of Dallas. Huge play in that game. Absolutely huge play in that game. Especially in the first half, that was like back and forth. There was blocked punts. There was fumbles on the goal line. There was sack fumbles. I mean, it was, it was nuts. The game honestly should have been a lot higher scoring than it was, and it, it still hit the over at like 55 or whatever it was, but... 
Massive play by Randy Gregory. Huge hit. So good play by him. Uh, option number two, we've got Trey Brown. Uh, in his first game ever for the Seahawks as a rookie. That counts. Uh, get, he, he's played preseason, counts, but least. this was his first regular season action. And made a fantastic play on Ray Ray McLeod in overtime. Um, you know, reading the quarterback's eyes, coming off late and just laying a huge hit short of the sticks to make the stop. Again, a big, big play for them. Still ended up losing the game, but uh, wanted to give him a shout-out, especially for making a forum tackle. I mean, textbook tackle down there. Uh, you know, held up his guy long enough for, for help to come and finish the job. And then uh, option number three, Derrick Henry, who we talked about this hit a little bit earlier. Uh, Micah Hyde sacrificing himself in the name of the Buffalo Bills. You know, putting putting life on the line to get run over by a human train. So, also shout out to Micah for taking that hit, but also Derrick Henry. I mean, god damn, he just punishes people, especially at full speed. Uh, one of my one of my favorite Henry runs from the night. And then option number four, this is one that I actually saw live. Uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones. I, I can't remember what Cardinals DB it was, but DPJ kind of stopped on the sideline and lowered his shoulder and just punished this dude on the way in the end zone. He had a great game overall, but that was probably... Uh, either that or the Hail Mary was probably the best play he made. This was certainly the most physical play he made. Just taking a DB for a ride and and, and kind of planting him in the dirt on the way to the end zone. So pretty good group of nominees we got this week, I would say. Yeah, DPJ, it was great to see that game from him. One of the – it's a silver lining thing. Look, the NFL's full of injuries. It, it's a brutal sport. People get injured every season one of the good things if there is a good thing that comes out of that is you get guys that are on that fringe of playing time on the fringe of starting on the fringe of a wide receiver rotation who now are the guy you know it's next man up in the nfl and dpj although he tore preseason and had great averages on the catches he made he wasn't making very many catches now you know they're down a receiver or two and it's like all right we're gonna have to feature you and he showed up, right? He got the Hail Mary. He got this touchdown we're talking about. He had a big third down conversion over the middle of the field. It was physical, popped right up, told the defensive back all about it, which I was not surprised by. Um, really cool to see Donald Peoples-Jones take advantage of the playing time. It's unfortunate that he had to get it via injury to somebody else, but that is the nature of the NFL, and you want to see a guy step up, and he stepped up really big. Um, Derek Henry, we've talked about at length, so I'll leave that one. Trey Brown is fun. Uh, one of those guys had a good senior bowl, came from Oklahoma, along with his other defensive backfield mate who we had on 10 Jams, Trey Norwood. They both had good games uh, on opposite sides of the ball, one for Seattle, one for Pittsburgh. Uh, both made big stops. Trey Brown, though, is in a really good spot again to get some playing time. They've had some injuries. They've released some folks uh, at corner for the Seahawks. And he came in and did not look like the moment was too big for him. And that bodes really well for him. And quite frankly, really well for the Seahawks who have been looking for some kind of something to stop somebody at the corners. Uh, that <laughs> Ken Norton Jr. led defense uh, has not had that. And Trey Brown opened some eyes. Uh, certainly, he was the talk of talk radio for the first two or three days of the week. Um, it looks like there's some potential there, and he played very well, again, in his first live action that counts. 
Um, and Randy Gregory had a couple of big plays in this game. This was the sort of more famous of the two, but he made an impact um, not only on the stat sheet, but also on Mac Jones. Mac Jones tried to get up really quickly from this one. It took him <laughs> a minute. This was uh, one of, I think it was the fifth fastest sack from the snap in the league this year. Randy got around the corner lickety split he did not take any times two point something seconds before he hit mac jones and man did he hit him right in the square of the back so um really solid group of nominees and it'll be interesting because i don't think there's like a clear winner this week um james daniels good fun last week but uh i don't i don't think we have any sort of outright favorites as we read the list and and that's always fun so if you want to vote for the winner you go into the YouTube version of the show, I'll have the a pinned comment with uh, all the nominees, and you can vote there. Um, and from there, let's get to the Week 7 watch list. These are three games that we're really excited to watch this weekend. There were not a whole lot of, like, let's be honest, great games on the docket, at least on paper, in my opinion. But these are the three that we felt were probably the best of the bunch. Uh, it's the 4-2 and two Bengals going against the aforementioned great 5-1 and one Ravens, arguably top two team in the league Bengals maybe a little bit ahead on the rebuild compared to what our preseason expectations were but Joe Burrow is playing amazing Jamar Chase is having one of the greatest rookie seasons that I can remember for a receiver ever he's on pace for over 1500 yards this year and a boatload of touchdowns which is just insane considering he hasn't even or at least before this season hadn't played football in like 18 months so it's going to be fascinating to talk about Chris Evans too Yeah, where the fuck did that come from? Yeah, that's what we got (laughs) to talk about with Chris Evans. Chris Evans, running back, Michigan. Neither one of us were terribly high on him. As you know, I really i am intrigued by running back play. I I watch a lot of running backs every year. Chris Evans, not average as an athlete, but as a runner on the football field in pads at Michigan, was pretty damn average. He is one of those guys that I had marked down as gets what's blocked He very rarely broke plays. He did not have a lot of receiving. And this reminds me very much of your Herbert take at Oregon because of the system, right? It was, we didn't give the system enough credit for suppressing Herbert's production. And I think there's a little bit of that with Chris Evans at Michigan too, where he didn't get many pass catching opportunities and if you saw the pass catching touchdown from this last weekend oh it was insane laid out diving catch in the end zone on on basically outside wheel route like with speed uh so he's he's showing every bit of athleticism again he tested very well but he looked really average running in michigan's attack and he had almost no passing yardage so i had him down as sort of a jag uh not a jaguar a jag just another guy like he was you know he was an athlete and if your coach liked him sure pick him up and put him in your rotation maybe put him on your practice squad that's the level i had chris evans at the way he's producing over the last couple of weeks on the field has been like you said where did that come from it's eye-opening so uh a miss for me on chris evans Again, not accounting for how Michigan's scheme apparently suppressed him. Now, it's funny because we talk about DPJ and we actually figured in a little bit of that on DPJ and said, oh, well, it's Michigan, so he can do more than that. He'll be a better pro. We didn't say that about Evans, and man, is he proving us wrong right now. I'm trying to 
see where he got drafted at. So he he was a sixth round pick. So even the NFL was like, eh, you mm-hmm. know. And then he shows up in the league and is suddenly a much better player. It just bang, yeah. So funny. Anyway, shout funny out how to that works. Shout out to Chris Evans. Uh, next up on the watch list, we got Chiefs Tennessee. Again, this is one of the. It's a must win game for the Chiefs. Like, there's no other way to say it. Like, they they have to win this game. Um, you know, get back above 500. Because if they if they go, what is it, three and four? If they lose this, if they go three and four, it's it's going to be really tough for them. Not just to win the division, but in terms of playoff seating, they're going to have to spend the entire playoffs on the road with a bad defense. It's like they have to win this game to get back in the race for the division so that they could at least have one game in January at Arrowhead if they even get to the playoffs. Uh, Do you I'm feel assuming like they it's going to be a slugfest? I feel like it's going like to be a Derrick Henry game. Like I like right. a slugfest for Derrick Henry, but it's going to be I, I like I think it, there's a decent shot that it's going to start out Chiefs ahead. Like they'll they'll get some big plays to to Tyreek or Travis or whoever, and they'll go up, and it's going to be very similar to the Seattle game, where deep shot they go up by two possessions, and Henry's just rolling. And Henry's rolling. They break off a big run. All of a sudden, it's a seven-point game in the fourth quarter. You're getting a little nervous. Tennessee gets a stop, and Henry gets the ball back. And then you're going to overtime, and oh, shit, it happens again. Like, that's how that's how the Titans win. They go down, and then Henry's just like, I'm still coming. I'm going to yeah. get you. I think this does. one's going to be super physical because, look, Vrabel's games are Like, the Titans are built to be super physical, and I don't just mean Derrick Henry. Uh, I think it was um, Ben Solak that put out a tweet this week and said, you know, Mike Vrabel, we will just be bigger than everybody at every position. That's my coaching strategy. (laughs) And he's not wrong. Like, Vrabel wants tough guys. He wants hitters. And these two teams also have history. So there's Vrabel built the Titans to be super physical and run people over. And then the Chiefs and Titans have locked up for AFC sort of top spot a couple of times. There's there's a little bit of bad blood there, too. I think some people are going to get knocked around in this one. And the Chiefs defense is going to have to buckle the chimp strap a little bit tighter if they want to compete. Yeah, they're going to need their safeties to to sacrifice themselves like Micah Hyde did. So good luck with that. <laughs> good luck with and that. And then uh, last game this week on our watch list. Is uh is a Philly in Vegas, you know I'm not going to confuse Philly with a contender right now, but I do find them a very intriguing team. And Vegas is obviously, you know, playing very well, especially considering their circumstances too. So you never really know what you're going to get with Jalen Hurts. Um, you know Lane Johnson's back, which is big for them. They've dealt with a lot of offensive line absences, either through injury or otherwise. Shout out to Lane Johnson, by the way. Uh, for addressing, you know, his mental health and taking time away from the game and getting right. Good for him. Happy to see that he's he's back and with his teammates and feeling better. Um, but yeah, this game is really, really intriguing to me because the, the Eagles defense has been very inconsistent. You know, good one week, bad the next. The offensive line has been highly inconsistent. Hurts himself has been highly inconsistent. But when they're on, they're a dangerous team. You know, they have some weapons, Quez Watkins, uh, Devonta Smith, obviously. When they decide to run the ball, Miles Sanders has been effective. Uh, they don't run it that often. So, you know, going up against a, a Vegas team that also, I think, is 
super interesting and just fun to watch. Like, I'll probably tune into this game more for entertainment's sake than anything else. Yeah, this is not... I want to be clear that this is not a game that we think is a game of equals. Um, And I said it a little bit at the top, but this felt like the first week where there weren't as many marquee games. Normally when I'm going through and I'm writing up the watch list, it's like, oh, I could do that one or that one or that one. And it's just flavors of great. This week it was like, well, Ravens Bengals is interesting. It's a divisional game. Again, not evenly matched, but could be a very fun game and a game that tells us a lot about two teams. Chiefs Titans, it's really about the implication for the Chiefs and the fact that the Titans are a wild card. And then it was like, what do I pick after that? I ended up picking Eagles Raiders because Eagles have played inconsistently, but at very high levels on defense. I won't say very high levels on offense. They really haven't flashed uh, a sort of a full game of offensive production that's really scary. And the Raiders are playing at a pretty high level. So it's about whether or not the Eagles can give the Raiders a game. But that was really kind of the best third game on the schedule. And I felt like this is the first week that that's happened. And it's a combination of the league sort of sorting itself into strata or tiers. We talked about that again at the top that we, we pretty much know who's good. There's a wide middle of interesting teams. And then there are teams that are struggling at the bottom and are probably going to be there at the end of the year. Uh, the Jacksonvilles, the Lions. And if anybody in the comments jumps in and says, but Jacksonville just won, um, I will shout them down because Jacksonville's going to be at the bottom at the end of the year. Um, just felt like the first week where it wasn't just like, oh, here's my smorgasbord of games and I can pick the very best ones. It was like, well, these are the best of what's there. Um, but that's a first. Yeah, but I mean, knowing the NFL... <laughs> regardless of what games look like on paper, there's going to be some craziness that happens. It's just been that kind of season. We're, we're going to get good games regardless, even if we don't necessarily expect it. Uh, before we get out of here for good, I do want to remind everybody that we are uh, holding a patron-only uh, you know, Q&A stream this Saturday, 9 a.m. Pacific time, if you're in either of the top two tiers over on Patreon, which is linked down below. Stop by, hang out with us, ask us questions. We'll probably be watching film and and just talking ball, hanging out. Whatever you want to talk about, we'll talk about. So again, that is 9 a.m. this Saturday, October 23rd, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific time for anybody who's in the top two tiers on Patreon. And also remember, if you are a patron, you do get discounts on merchandise over on the store. Also link below. Um, We have pretty much everything you can think of in terms of bootleg merch. Yeah, got my beanie that I wear every single week, EJ's shirt, all that. So you get a lot for your money, your hard-earned money that you guys decide to give to us to support the show. And we thank you for that. Uh, also want to thank uh, members of the Bootleg Hall of Fame, Marat Kanege. God, I hope I I really don't want to butcher that name too terribly. Uh, Marat, if you can send me a DM and let me know what the actual pronunciation is, I would love that. And then Constantine Hausler. Again, thank you to our uh, executive producers over in the Hall of Fame. We appreciate you guys a lot. So with that, we're going to get out of here. Thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. Whatever platform you choose to consume bootleg football, we really appreciate it. And we will be back next week to break down week seven and look ahead to week eight. And if you're going to stop by to the stream on Saturday, thank you for that. And we'll see you then. So see you guys soon. Take care.